millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to Censored. I'm Aoife Vrednach, finishing 2021 with yet another dirty book. If you want to support the show, check out my Patreon page and merch store. Or just leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. That helps more people find the show and more smut out there in the world. This episode, the novel rejoices in the excellent title, Cakes and Ale or the Skeleton in the Cupboard. Published in September 1930, it was written by William Somerset Maugham. In November, two months later, it was banned in Ireland. The board was brand new at this point. It was only in operation a year. The censorship was new enough that the Irish Times gave this ban a little article all of its own. Later on, they just compile a list, but this got like a little news feature. This also reflected the importance of banning such a popular best-selling novel. It wasn't like an earlier banned novel, say The Well of Loneliness, which was impossible to get in Ireland anyway because it had already been banned in the UK. No, Cakes and Ale was definitely on the shelves when it was banned. I know about this because a bookshop owner was prosecuted for selling it after it was blacklisted. But more on that later, after we explore the smuttiness first. The subtitle, The Skeleton in the Cupboard, hints that it's about a dirty or shameful secret. This subtitle is interesting because in the new edition I'm reading, it doesn't appear on the title page or anywhere else. Most editions at the time didn't shorten it to Cakes and Ale, maybe because it's a new novel, it's not yet a classic. The subtitle is just great anyway, it's such a tease. What is the skeleton and who's keeping the cupboard under lock and key? I do love a good mystery now. For the beverage to go with the book, this time I've chosen tea. But the formal meal, where you sit with a teapot and sliced cake and bread and butter. This isn't a mug and a quick bicky situation. The most memorable afternoon tea in this novel is in a small, cosy sitting room, warm from the fire and conviviality. The narrator, Willie Ashenden, is taking tea with a well-known author, Edward Driffield, and his wife, Rosie. But he's hiding this from his starchy relations, who disapprove of them both. Afternoon tea has never been so seditious and secretive. There's a delicious, scandalous edge to it. It's also deeply nostalgic, because the narrator is recalling his teenage years from the vantage point of mature adulthood. 
I felt it was the high point of a certain style of the novel, which combines scandal and wistful hopes for genuine human communication. So I've dusted off my teapot and put a plate under my biscuit. I seem respectable now, but that's just appearances, isn't it? Who knows what's going on underneath? Right then, why do I think it was banned? It did cause a fuss when it was released, but not for its daring depiction of sex. This novel is a gossipy hatchet job on literary life as Mom experienced it in London. Readers outside the club, like you and me, were told in press coverage who was who. The thinly disguised characters were quickly associated with their real-life counterparts. So Alroy Keir is in fact Hugh Walpole, a wildly popular best-selling author, and Edward Driffield is Thomas Hardy, a great writer from a previous generation. Willie Ashenden contains many elements of William Somerset Maugham himself. The novel is very sharp on celebrity culture and manufactured fame. Talent, or the lack of it, is also skewered. There are lines so catty and tart that I laughed out loud. But a vicious take on literary celebrity is hardly enough to get it banned. So what bits could be classified as rude? To be honest, I kind of struggled. It's great fun to read, but takes ages to get properly naughty. Before the sex bits, which, don't worry, I will read out, there were dark hints about immorality. Rosie Driffield is a former barmaid married to Edward. Her career behind the bar makes her socially and sexually suspect. Willie learns all this because his uncle and aunt frigidly disapprove of her. But their coldness towards the Driffields, their anxiety not to speak to them, only makes Willie more curious. He turns to a servant employed in the house, Mary Ann, because she's the same age and social class as Rosie. He draws her out in conversation, trying to get as much information as possible, trying to expand the dark hints into something more. He learns that Rosie lost her first barmaid job in the village because it got so bad that the landlady had to get rid of her. When he asks Mary Ann, what did she do? He gets the following answer, and this is from page 58. What didn't she do? said Mary Ann. What do you think your uncle would say if he caught me telling you things like that? There wasn't a man who come in to have a drink that she didn't carry on with, no matter who they was. She couldn't stick to anybody. It was just one man after another. They tell me it was simply horrible. Shocking stuff! Premarital sex is bad, but casual premarital sex? Outrageous! So Rosie was pretty free with her favours in the old days. She was, in fact, a, she was a classic loose woman. This isn't an explicit description of a sex act, but no one with a brain could miss what was going on. It gets even better, or worse, if you're the Irish censor. Ashenden's teenage mind is boggling at the news. He's refusing to believe that old fellows in pubs would be mad with lust, and he's full of questions. So he asks the biggie, the one we're all thinking, on page 61. But look here, why didn't she have a baby? In the novels I had read, whenever a lovely woman stooped to folly, she had a baby. The cause was put with infinite precaution, sometimes indeed suggested only by a row of asterisks, 
but the result was inevitable. More by good luck than good management, I lay, said Mary Anne. Then she recollected herself and stopped drying the plates she was busy with. It seems to me that you know a lot more than you ought to, she said. Of course I know, I said importantly. Hang it all, I'm practically grown up, aren't I? I love this so much, there's loads to unpick. Firstly, that Willie's reading has opened his eyes to extramarital sex and pregnancy consequences. This is in spite of the fact that the texts he's reading are actually censored, with asterisks standing in for words. His novels might use symbols instead of words, but of course these soon become shorthand for prohibited information. It's very funny how concealing something can make it even more obvious. And secondly, Marianne's response makes clear that contraceptive technology exists in some form. We don't find out how good management works, but it's clear it's different to good luck. The censors didn't want anyone to guess that you could manage sex to avoid pregnancy. After all, that's one of the central aims of the Censorship Act. So I would say that Cakes and Ale was banned by page 61. But of course, there's much more, and some of it's quite delicious. The narrative around Rosie and how she features in the novel would have horrified the censors. Rosie herself is quite glorious in her disregard for social propriety. She is literally shameless, telling Willie how much she enjoyed working as a barmaid. She says, It's a hard life, but a merry one. You do see a bit of what's going on, and if you play your cards right, you ought to marry well. Given we know she fooled around and then met her husband in the pub, this sentence is like a full and frank confession. Even better, she then says, I had a rare old time when I was a barmaid, but of course you can't go on forever. You have to think of your future. And here she's confirming all those stereotypes about loose women. She's both wayward and coldly calculating. To a judgmental outsider, Rosie's sexual behaviour would seem cynical. But the way she puts it, it's entirely pragmatic and easy. Because she has no shame, Willie is forced to take her as she is. She resists shame, which is an emotion placed upon us by others, and therefore he cannot control how she sees herself. Her strength of self-regard means that he's the one who's embarrassed, but she never is. As a teenager, he struggled with this, but his older self, who's writing the narrative, sees the problem much more clearly. And there's this great bit from page 65 on social propriety. It never ceased to embarrass me, the way in which they talked of incidents in their past that I should have thought they would not dream of mentioning. I do not know that the people I lived among were pretentious in the sense of making themselves out to be richer or grander than they really were, but looking back it does seem to me that they lived a life full of pretenses. They dwelt behind a mask of respectability. You never caught them in their shirt sleeves with their feet on the table. The ladies put on afternoon dresses and were not visible till then. They lived privately with rigid economy so that you could not drop in for a casual meal. But when they entertained, their tables groaned with food. Though catastrophe overwhelmed the family, they held their heads high and ignored it. One of the sons might have married an actress, but they never referred to the calamity, and though the neighbours said it was dreadful, 
they took ostentatious care not to mention the theatre in the presence of the afflicted. Oh, it's just so good. It's delicious. His skewering of middle-class gentility and hypocrisy is very funny. Of course, his characters and settings are very English, but I'm sure the dirty-minded Irish censors felt a twinge of confused recognition and outrage when they read this. That description of a rigidly respectable, tightly controlled, and a society that managed shame with complete silence? It sounds like a stereotypical vision of Holy Catholic Ireland after independence in the 20s. Mom is pointing out how disgust at sex is central to this culture, is what gives it that coldness. But on to the sex scene, the most dramatic sex scene in the novel. We fast forward in time to Willie as a college student in London, where by chance he once again meets the Driffields. He hangs out at their house, at a literary salon that attracts all kinds of artists and patrons. Rosie goes to dinner and theatre with any man who'll ask, once again without discrimination. Willie sees this, but refuses to imagine that there is anything more to these encounters. Then he begins to go out with her in the evening, one of which ends with the two of them in his boarding house bedroom. When Rosie strokes his face, he's overwhelmed with emotion and begins to cry. And this is what happens next. It's on page 141. The tears welled up in my eyes and poured down my cheeks. Rosie saw them and gave a little gasp. Oh, honey, what is it? What's the matter? Don't, don't. She put her arms around my neck and began to cry too, and she kissed my lips and my eyes and my wet cheeks. She undid her bodice and lowered my head till it rested on her bosom. She stroked my smooth face. She rocked me back and forth as though I were a child in her arms. I kissed her breasts and I kissed the white column of her neck and she slipped out of her bodice and out of her skirt and her petticoats, and I held her for a moment by her corseted waist. Then she undid it, holding her breath for an instant to enable her to do so, and stood before me in her shift. When I put my hands on her sides, I could feel the ribbing of the skin from the pressure of the corsets. Blow out the candle, she whispered. Okay, so it is a sex scene, but it's hardly steamy, is it? It's a bit short on passion or desire. Maybe. I mean, maybe this is related to Mom's own sexuality. He described himself as three-quarters queer. And his most serious long-term relationships were with men. Now, he did get married and was once infatuated with a woman who refused to marry him. Coincidentally, she's the person he modelled Rosie on. This tender scene between Willie and Rosie is only barely sexual. Perhaps this section is autobiographical, as other parts of the novel are. Perhaps not. But from the censor's point of view, as bad as a much older married woman sleeping with a young fellow was, Mom went even further. Willie sleeps with Rosie for a year, in an easy, relaxed way. There's no angst, and also no unexpected pregnancy. Just nice sex whenever they feel like it. There is a brief hiccup when he realises she is seeing other men at the same time. Their confrontation on this, though, is pretty drama-free. And this is from page 149. I looked at Rosie now with angry, hurt, resentful eyes. 
She smiled at me, and I wish I knew how to describe the sweet kindliness of her beautiful smile. Her voice was exquisitely gentle. Oh, my dear, why do you bother your head about any others? What harm does it do you? Don't I give you a good time? Aren't you happy when you're with me? Awfully. Well, then, it's so silly to be fussy and jealous. Why not be happy with what you can get? Enjoy yourself while you have the chance, I say. We shall all be dead in a hundred years. And what will anything matter then? Let's have a good time while we can. She put her arms round my neck and pressed her lips against mine. I forgot my wrath. I only thought of her beauty and her enveloping kindness. You must take me as I am, you know, she whispered. All right, I said. So this is not an intensely emotional affair. The best thing for Willie about Rosie is how relaxed the relationship is. Imagine all the pleasures of sex with someone beautiful you really like, but you're never jealous of. It's a cosy fuck-buddy arrangement. Rosie shares her body in the same way as she cut the cake for afternoon tea, generously and kindly. For a promiscuous, poorly educated woman to sleep with a man of Willie's class without being stigmatized, that's quite something. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Other characters in the novel insist how common she is, how dreadful she is. They even call her a strumpet. What an old-fashioned word. She's the object of scorn from other characters but never from Willie, who commands the narrative, after all. Nowhere is Rosie condemned or shunned or brought low by her promiscuity. It's quite remarkable, really, because he's not promiscuous at all. It doesn't seem to be sleeping with anyone else. In so, so many other narratives, women suffer because of their sexual behaviour, but not in cakes and ale. 
That's not to say that Mom is equally forgiving to all the women characters in the novel. Women who cynically manage writers to market literary celebrity, they're not spared. You could argue there's a whiff of misogyny here, but it's not much. That these women are bitches is more about the system, the literary marketplace and fame, than their gender. The shallow, vain men get roasted just as much as the women. Apparently, Hugh Walpole recognised himself immediately in Alroy Keir. He sat up all night reading it, in tears, with one sock on. Walpole had considered Mom a dear friend, and was devastated by this betrayal, perhaps because he suspected others admired the satire. Virginia Woolf described the Keir character as a very clever piece of torture. I'd say the novel is really hilarious if you know a lot about the 1920s literary scene, but I don't know much about it and I still found it funny. In my notes I've written page 90 best sentence ever and I'm going to share this with you for the shits and giggles. Here Willie is caustically criticising Driffield novels, in other words the work of Thomas Hardy. His women hardly come to life, but here again I must add that this is only my own opinion. The world at large and most eminent critics have agreed that they are very winsome types of English womanhood, spirited, gallant, high-souled, and they have often been compared with the heroines of Shakespeare. We know, of course, that women are habitually constipated, but to represent them in fiction as being altogether devoid of a back passage seems to me really an excess of chivalry. If you don't inhale your tea at that, there's no hope for you. Another great line concerns the skeleton in the cupboard, so teasingly alluded to in the title. Willie is being pumped for information about Driffield by Keir, who's planning to write an authorised biography of the great man. Keir insists that Willie tell him about the Driffield he knew as a young man, because, quote, I can do nothing unless I am in complete possession of the facts. Willie tartly replies, Obviously you can't cook them unless you have them. What a burn! It's ferocious, vicious and deadly accurate. The skeleton is Driffield's wife, Rosie, who was in fact his first wife. His second wife, a much younger woman than her famous husband, is desperate to protect his legacy and wants to write Rosie out of his past. Wife number two hopes the authorised biography will transform Rosie into a very dirty secret, a woman of no importance. You could say the skeleton is also that the great author wrote all his best work when married to Rosie. I really enjoyed the drama in the novel between Willie's memories of Rosie and Driffield, as they were before his great fame, and then the manufactured version of them created by their managers. Very clever and insightful. I really did enjoy this book. So now it's time for censorship bingo. And after that, then I want to talk about the court case because it's kind of separate to the book. It's more about how the censorship worked. But first, time to rate the rudeness of cakes and ale. Starting, as usual, with breasts. Oh yes, Rosie's boobs do feature. There's a particularly hilarious line on page 142. Her waist was naturally small, Though so well developed, she was very slender. Her breasts were straight and firm and they stood out from her chest as though carved in marble. 
Marble boobs. Sure, why not? Sounds great. So yeah, we're definitely ticking breasts. Then bestiality. No, absolutely not. Sex work. Yes, that does appear in a later section, but I won't spoil the twist in the tale by telling you exactly how it worked. Racism. Oh yes. Apart from the obligatory casual Semitic comment, uh, on page 180 there was a really nasty bit. Wife number two is trash-talking wife number one, Rosie. Rosie throughout the book appears as this beautiful, luminous, soft creature, very idealised, and wife number two is trying to puncture that. And here they are looking at pictures of Driffield and Rosie when they were young and first married. I'm going to read this bit out to you. Uh, Obviously not the racial slur because it's gross, but just to give you an idea of the effect. That was how I best remembered her. Notwithstanding the old-fashioned gown, she was alive there and tremulous with the passion that filled her. She seemed to offer herself to the assault of love. She gives you the impression of a hefty wench, said Roy. If you like the milkmaid type, answered Mrs. Driffield, I've always thought she looked rather like a white N-word. That was what Mrs. Barton Trafford had been fond of calling her, and with Rosie's thick lips and broad nose, there was indeed a hateful truth in that description. But they did not know how silvery golden her hair was, now how golden silver her skin. They did not know her enchanting smile. Okay, so there's a lot there. Obviously the racial slur, and then it's denial because it would be hateful. There's a whole mess of racism here. If I could tick this box twice or three times, I would, just for this section alone. But yeah, I'm definitely ticking racism. Next up, drugs. No, I don't think so. Hardly any drink, actually. Then politics. No, not really. Swearing. No, everyone's very polite. Infidelity. Well, yes, Rosie is extremely promiscuous, married or not. So yes. Crime. I don't think so, really, apart from the brief reference to sex work. Genitalia. No, certainly not. Abortion. No. Orgies. No. Sexual assault. No, I don't think so. Remarkably little traumatic sex, actually. Extramarital pregnancy. Yes, that definitely comes up a few times. Masturbation. No. Sex toys. No way. Feminism. I think we can safely say there's not much that's feminist about the women in this text, so we can leave that out. Divorce. No, there's no divorce, even though there's lots of infidelity. Contraception. There is that mention to managing, so yes, we can tick that one. Menstruation. No, it's not forthright about the reality of bodies. Blasphemy. I don't think so. Even the Irish couldn't find any blasphemy in this. Oral sex. No. No, it's not explicit on sex acts. Graphic violence. No, divil a bit. And finally, queer content. I think there's probably hints of it in the literary salon that's assembled around Driffield and Willie's interaction with various people there, but it is very heavily concealed under the dominant narrative of Willie's attraction to Rosie and his obsession with her. But I think that certainly within the description of that artistic milieu, there'd be stuff going on there that I'm sure I've missed. So I think I will take that.
In total then, Cakes and Ale gets 6 out of 25, which isn't a bad score really. It's fairly typical of a book from the 30s. Like I said, it's not deeply salacious, but I do think I could have missed a lot of in-jokes that would give it a higher score. But the real reason I chose this novel is because it was a bestseller and a bookseller was convicted for selling it after it was blacklisted. In August 1931, Mr O'Keefe, a Cork bookseller, was summonsed for exposing a prohibited book for sale. Exposing. I enjoy how the legal language conflates indecent exposure, flashing, with selling a banned book. Exposing makes it sound so dirty. Poor Mr O'Keefe complained that he couldn't be expected to know the book was banned. He obviously didn't read the Irish Times, which, as I said, had covered the blacklisting. But then of course he didn't. He lived in Cork City, where hardly anyone read it. Today, the Irish Times is quite widely read, but in 1930, it was very much a Dublin paper associated with posh people, particularly posh Protestants. O'Keefe said he couldn't have known about the ban because the register was kept in the Dublin offices of the censor. And he's right, the Act actually mentioned that the register would be in Dublin City. So there were no copies of the blacklist available for him to consult in Cork City. But then you're wondering, who in Cork knew that Cakes and Ale was on the blacklist if the register was in Dublin? To put it bluntly, who informed on O'Keefe? Who went to the Gordy to say he was selling a banned book? This really goes to the heart of how censorship worked on the ground. And for me, there are two big questions. Who policed the list? And were blacklisted books on sale? I'll take the second one first. Yes, blacklisted books were on sale, at least at the very beginning of the censorship. Cakes and Ale was published in September 1930 and banned in November that year, so there was a two-month period when it was legal to import and sell it. Because it was a popular novel, it was in demand. It wasn't an obscure book, imported in tiny numbers. Eason's, the biggest Irish wholesalers, would have imported a large stock to distribute to shop owners like O'Keefe. In the nine months since the ban, he was selling cakes and ale openly without incident. So the biggest question is, who enforced the censorship? Who told on O'Keefe? Of course, it could have been a policeman, browsing the bookshelves on his day off. But then there's no evidence that police stations were circulated with the list either. My guess is that the informer was personally interested in censoring. He or she was a moral policeman a busybody who couldn't mind their own business. The only people who kept a close eye on the blacklist were beady-eyed, censorious types. And Cork City had a fair few of them. There was a vigilance committee of the Society of St. Jude operating in the city. This was one of many vigilance committees around the country that tried to suppress evil literature and saucy films. These were lay volunteers, sometimes led by priests, sometimes not, who kept their eyes peeled for publicly available filth. Before the Censorship Act was passed, these committees would confiscate and burn newspapers they didn't like. Charming. I don't know much about the lads in Cork yet, how long this St. Jude's committee was around, or what exactly it did. Sean O'Fueloin mentioned them, saying they tried to stop couples snogging on the street. 
They also submitted suspect publications to the police, who then sent them to the censorship board. This local vigilance committee probably helped enforce the Censorship Act. I'm sure they went round to bookshops, newsagents and libraries, making sure none of the banned books were available. St. Jude might be the patron saint of lost causes, but the Cork Committee was pretty successful on the censorship front. And they only really needed to make an example of one or two people. O'Keefe was convicted but given probation rather than a heavy sentence. He was surely careful not to do it again since he had to pay for a solicitor to represent him in court. His fellow booksellers were on notice that their customers could inform on them. Potential offenders are sometimes deterred by fear of prosecution and I think it worked in this case. It would be hard to get away with public sales of books if any customer would tell on you. Now there didn't need to be many informers and I'm sure there weren't many in Cork City who knew Cakes and Ale was banned. That's why I suspect it was a motivated vigilance type rather than Sean Citizen casually coming across a filthy book. Thing is though, a complaint to the police is not enough for the law to be enforced. We all know the police get loads of complaints. Some they take very seriously indeed, others not so much. And Ireland is famous for its relaxed attitude to lots of laws. All of us, from citizens to police to politicians, are content to let most of the statute book lie idle. I'm never sure if this is compassion or just pure laziness. For the informer to have power in this situation, he needed to know the police were willing to issue a summons. Luckily for the Cork snoops, the Gorthy were happy to do so. So the prosecution of Mr O'Keefe came about because the state, through the police, felt this law, on exposing prohibited publications for sale, was worth enforcing. Cakes and Ale wasn't spectacularly rude, but it is important in censorship history because of this court case. Of course, I'm not saying we should automatically believe O'Keefe's I didn't have a clue defence. He may have known the book was illegal and decided to risk it. I'll never really know, but I do know he was never brought to court for the same offence again. Whatever his intentions, Mr O'Keefe abided by the law after 1931 which proves that the censorship laws were pretty effectively enforced in 1930s Ireland. Next episode will be released on the 6th of January because it's time for the Christmas holidays. I'm sure you all have a rake of dirty books piled up to read. The first book of 2022 will be The Sheik by E.M. Hull. It was much racier than Cakes and Ale, but it wasn't actually banned in Ireland. The novel is a sexy desert adventure featuring hot foreigners, spirited horses and feisty women. A little bit of escapism will be perfect for the first week in January. Till then, keep your hands clean and sparkly while you wallow in festive debauchery. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.